things looked this morning as though we would have some uh, issues uh, this evening with service. I quickly felt like uh, it was a great opportunity to um, have a follow-up from last week and the conversation on grief. We were talking just before we started this evening. Um, I, I, it seems like the conversation on grief was weeks and months ago, uh, not not a week ago. Um, but I felt like this would be a great opportunity since we already had this evening kind of uh, uh, blocked out for service to take advantage of that. And so um, uh, my guests in the studio this evening, <laughs> uh, my wife is, is joining the conversation this evening. And then Sister Melissa McGurk is going to join in the conversation this evening, and um, I, I, I want to I take a few more moments here at the beginning this evening that I did last week, um, and just kind of maybe sort of setting the stage, but also uh, hopefully kind of getting your mind um, open to uh, the fact that maybe maybe there's something that you've kind of overlooked to this point, that um, you haven't really recognized the impact of it, that the Lord will kind of bring that to your mind this evening because he wants you to um, overcome the loss and the impact of it. Um, last week, we, we did, obviously, if you watched, we, we mixed it up a good bit, uh, but no doubt one of the, the primary topics last week had to do with death. Uh, we said it and we tried to communicate it that grieving and loss is not just about death. And um, so that, that's another one of my hopes this evening is that it'll kind of broaden even more for some of you that maybe last week you kind of checked off each box that was uh, being talked about and you were kind of like, nope, I'm good, I'm okay, that maybe there are some other areas um, that the Lord would like to, to bring to mind. I want to read, uh, uh, start off with Ecclesiastes 3, which is a very familiar passage to a lot of people. But uh, it says this, verse 1, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven." A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which was planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. And this this fourth verse to me is uh, very applicable to this, this discussion, um, especially the first half of this verse. A time to weep, a time to laugh a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Actually, not the first half, the whole verse. A time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And, and I think it's, it's very important. I've, I've heard some people sometimes in dealing with loss uh, sort of, um, I don't know about brag about, but make a big point out of the fact, well, I haven't cried, I didn't cry. Well, uh, the, the wise man says there is a time to weep because I think weeping is, is uh, a part of a God-designed um, expression 
uh, and a part of the process. And I don't mean you have to sit around and cry all day long every day, uh, but, but I think it's a part of it. And so the, the wise man tells us there is a time for each of these. And uh, there is, I, I tried preparation for tonight to dig a little more into Scripture and try to find out some more specifics of what Scripture might say about the process of grieving. And uh, a couple of things that, that stood out as I was doing that, um, Numbers 20 and 29 says this, When all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead. They mourned for Aaron 30 days, even all the house of Israel. Deuteronomy 34 and 8 says, And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Again, I know this is talking about death with each of these, but in the broader context, I, I think it's significant that Scripture takes the time to make the point that there was weeping that was connected to loss. And in fact, Jesus himself, when he came to the, uh, the, the, the circumstances that had just taken place with Mary and Martha, um, I guess not just taken place, Lazarus was dead a couple of days, but the Bible says that Jesus wept. I've heard a lot of opinions on that. I've heard some people say Jesus wept because he was sort of disturbed by their lack of faith and other reasons. I personally think Jesus wept because he was expressing his humanity, that he felt the sorrow, he felt the grief. And from the human side, even though the God side of him was about to perform a miracle, he was, he was connected to the human side. And so it's, you know, it was said last week uh, by a couple, I think Sister Richards and I think Kim, said it, uh, the, the feeling of needing to be strong for others. And, and I realize there is that at times, but we also, even if we're trying to be strong for others, have got to find our own times and places where we are able to um, allow those feelings and emotions to, uh, to be released. So I, I want to, um, the other thing I want to do here kind of in the opening is, and I, I've Found a couple of things online. I'm pretty sure I got them from reliable sources. I didn't get them from Wikipedia. So uh, I think some other reliable sources. Um, and, and it just kind of is uh, one, of, one of these. I, and the second thing I'm kind of going to read here is kind of a list of some types of losses. Again, for the purpose of broadening your, um, your perspective on what may be loss in your own life. Um, the first thing I want to read is this, um, and, and I found some, uh, in addition to types of losses, I found some uh, sort of categories of grieving and, uh, or types of grief, and I, I want to read one of those. Uh, this type of grief is anticipatory grief. Anticipatory grief is the reaction to a loss you are able to anticipate such as when someone is diagnosed with a terminal illness. And we actually kind of touched on that a little bit last week without calling it that when we talked about Sister uh, Kim McGuckian and Brother Glandon and his illness. As soon as we accept and understand someone we love is going to die, we begin grieving. Grief that occurs before the actual loss, and again, 
the risk of being redundant. I want you to think of loss, not just in the context of a death. Grief that occurs before the actual loss can be confusing. We may feel conflicted or guilty for experiencing grief reactions about someone who is still here. We may also feel grief over the loss of things other than the individual, such as loss of hopes and dreams for the future. So, lastly, I want to I want to just kind of go through a, a list of some types of loss, and then we will get into um, the discussion. Uh, loss of body function, such as hearing, vision, and I think I'm starting to relate to both of those. <clears throat> so, I may be getting ministry here this evening. <laughs> uh, mental capacities, mobility, communication, loss of health, medical conditions, illnesses, disability, debilitating or terminal diseases, Loss of home, property, homelessness, natural or man-made disasters. Loss of identity, whether through marriage, career, empty nest syndrome, relocation, retirement. Loss of independence, change in living situations such as entering a nursing home. Um, loss of innocence, early sexual experiences, advertising and media influences children influences children to grow up too soon, loss of job, income, uh, layoffs, career change. Uh, another one is loss of role, such as occupation, job, relationship. And I will insert, I think uh, loss of role is one that um, is fairly common in a ministry setting, um, either because you're moving on to something else or you're kind of getting to the end of, of maybe active ministry involvement because of uh, limitations that, that may be on you physically. Loss of relationships, uh, of course, death being the big one, but divorce, illness, etc. And then lastly, loss of plans, hopes and dreams for the future, a miscarriage, abortion, stillbirth, um, etc. So, Again, I, I realize some of these we kind of touched on a little bit last week, but I just my 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 burden tonight is the the accepting and not the minimizing of various things that we deal with that that affect us. And so um, we're we're gonna kind of uh, the ladies here this evening are kind of have a couple of areas they're gonna help relate um, and share with and. And then hopefully, um, my, my desire is to see us uh, focus a little bit more on the kind of not what loss is, but somewhat the process of, of overcoming that loss. So I'm going to uh, kind of begin, I think, with, with Melissa. I think she has a, a, um, uh, a very uh, applicable perspective to bring um, to this discussion based on some things that she's been through in the last several years. So, Melissa, if you would, maybe kind of just give a little bit of background of education, how long <laughs> that education took you, showing obviously how much time and effort you put into that, and then kind of 
what happened. I know a lot of people are aware, but um, kind of what you went through and kind of where you are now. Yeah, um, so I'll start with saying that some people don't know what they want to do when they grow older. But um, like for their career, I knew when I was in middle school that I wanted to be a nurse anesthetist and that's where I was going, that was gonna be my goal. So um, I worked extremely hard. It's a very uh, competitive career to get into and I knew that as a young person. So from the time I was in middle school, I was always like missing out on lunch with my friends, going to get tutored <laughs> at lunch with all my teachers instead. So I was always, you know, trying to get like 4.0, 4.0, I have to get a 4.0. And, it, you know, so it was like a drive I had since I was like in middle school. I knew what I wanted to do. I was going to do it. I was going to work as hard as I had to work to get in and to get accepted into the program. So the same thing in high school, same pressure of, oh, I have to, you know, get perfect grades, you know, to be accepted. Same thing in nursing school. I got accepted to undergrad nursing school for four years. I worked super hard and put a ton of pressure on myself that in order to get into the grad program now, I have to be good again, you know, I have to, you know, get really good grades. So um, I did and I actually wound up being valedictorian of my undergrad uh, university because again, that drive, I have to get into this program. Um, so after that, I had to work for about two and a half years, like a work um, experience program before they would even accept me into the grad program. It's kind of like, a prerequisite of applying to that. So kind of if you count that as part of my education, um, you would count the four years of nursing school, those two years, and then um, two and a half years straight through of um, pretty intense, like 15 to 18 hour days of working and then going home, you know, doing a 12 hour shift and then studying four or five, six hours when I would get home to be up super early at like, 4 a.m. to be in the OR, set up my OR room and my anesthesia um, table so that everything was in order when the doctors came in because they were gonna, you know, look at everything, make sure you were ready um, for your day. So it, it was like functioning on that kind of level for a straight two and a half years and it was very, very intense. But um, just talking about getting into that program, it was, um, I applied to a couple different schools, but um, one of the schools told me like the, people that applied, it was like, um, I think 800 applicants and they only accepted like 23 students. So that's like how, you know, and I knew that since I was in middle school and I knew that's what I was working toward. And I only tell you that because it was, not that I'm anything special, but it was such a drive and it was such a sure. goal that I knew of for so long that I was working towards that it kind of changes the perspective of when you lose it, it's like, you know, um, but anyways, so finished that and I graduated from Georgetown University um, with that degree and I was able to work for about two years. Um, so, and I, I loved what I did. It was, uh, fit my personality. I was very detail oriented. I was, you know, had plan A, plan B, plan C. If something goes wrong, we're all gonna be okay. Like very organized and um, good in stressful situations. And um, it was great and I loved it, but, um, I didn't, do you want me to start talking about the accident sure. now? Okay, so um, I was at, I remember it was actually snowing and it was a snow day and between my cases, I took a selfie of myself, like you know, all my anesthesia, I had my lead vest on. I, I looked like an alien pretty much. <laughs> I had goggles, I had my cap on, I had a mask. Probably we all look like that now, really. <laughs> but that was my every day, you know, so. Um, 
I was just documenting, and it was really weird. Like, I remember documenting, taking the selfie, and my patient wasn't in the room, of course. I would not comp you know, compromise patient care. But um, I took a selfie of myself, and it was just weird. Like, I had this weird feeling, like, something was changing. It was really weird. Like, this might be my, like, it was just weird. Like, this epic feeling I had that I was home, I was here doing this, and this is real life, and something's about to change. And so anyway, it was just this really weird feeling, whatever, I finished my day. Um, the next day I came in and I was working on a case, I think it was like a five minute back case, I was doing the anesthesia. The patient was on their stomach, um, which is kind of a stressful position for an anesthetist because if something happens, you have to flip them over to intubate them if there's an emergency. So I was like very like in tune to what was going on and um, the patient's oxygen level started going down, so I'm like bending over them, trying to open their airway from the top, which is, you know, giving a jaw thrust, but I was like over them like this. So I was bent all the way down, and the x-ray tech who was managing the big C arm, there's like a big operating room machine that slides up and down the bed, taking pictures during the procedure of, and it's called fluoroscopy, so um, that they inject the right place. Um, so that machine was moved over my head while I was down and my alarms were going off because the patient was, um, oxygen level was going down. And I'm like at the point now where I'm like, okay, we have to flip or else, you know, this could be bad, there could be a code. Um, so I'm down there and I whip my head up really fast to look at what his oxygen level was. And I hit the machine at like an angle. So my neck tilted down, my neck was to the side. And so, whatever, I fell back and was seeing stars and was kind of out of it for a minute. Thank God the patient was okay, he, he was fine. Um, so he, so the, that was actually my last case of the day, but I remember I opened my eyes and I knew something changed. I, my eyes were heavy. I felt like I hadn't slept in weeks, just, you know, in, in the blink of an eye. And I couldn't, I actually was like, took a break and I said, I have to go look in the mirror because I feel like my eyes are closed, but they were open. It was really weird. But um, that was my last case, so I left for the day. And I remember driving home, I could barely function. I could barely like focus on the road. Something, I knew something was off. I remember calling my mom saying, mom, something happened to me. I wasn't even really making sense. She, you know, when I got home, she was like calling me because she was like, you weren't even making sense. Something was off with you. And, um, but, yeah, so anyway, what happened was I went to the head first clinic and they diagnosed me with a concussion. Um, but, and they told me to go home and rest, so I'd be better in two weeks. But I never got better. I still had more problems, more problems, more problems. Um, so finally, it took about six months for them to really understand what was going on. What happened was I had torn a ligament in my neck that um, holds my vertebra where they're supposed to be. So because of that tear in those ligaments, um, the vertebra move and they hit my brainstem in different positions. Mm -hmm. So it was causing neurologic symptoms like terrible um, migraines, um, terrible nausea, um, dizziness, balance problems, um, all kinds of things that just weren't going away and vision, vision problems I couldn't, um, I still actually have vision problems, but uh, things would just move when I look at them. So um, they finally figured all that out and you know, they were telling me, you know, now you need to go see a neurosurgeon to really fully diagnose that. So I remember going to see the neurosurgeon and he told me that basically 
there's really no cure for, for what I have because the ligaments are so tiny and in such a, a place that's so close to the brainstem that the only thing they could do is fuse me so that I don't move and irritate the brainstem anymore, which would fuse the top, the bottom of my skull um, pretty much all the way down my neck. But um, because of how high my injury is, it's actually a very dangerous procedure. So they only save it for um, like when, you know, people are having problems breathing and, and walking. Like, so basically you have to be sicker than I am to have it done, to make it worth it. Um, so I left the doctor with that day. I remember I went home and I, I was sick over it for a week. I mean, I was basically told, there's nothing we can do to help you. You're miserable. You're just, you know, that irritation on your brainstem could grow worse and worse and worse until the more irritation, the more irritation because you're unstable, the more brain cells are going to be dying. So, um, you know, your breathing centers in your brainstem, your movement centers in your brainstem, your vital functioning is in your brainstem. So they basically told me that eventually it could get to a point where you can't control your bodily functions, you can't walk, you can't breathe. Um, and then we would, you know, once those symptoms start starting, we're gonna have to fuse you to protect your life. And I, it just was not what I was expecting. I thought I had a concussion. I thought I was gonna be right back at work um, the next day, you know, right after my accident. But um, I do remember the day when I was driving home and I felt so foggy, I felt like the Lord spoke to me and he told me, um, this was your last day doing anesthesia. So it kind of, reminded me of that when I took that selfie it was kind of like that moment like mm. this is it <laughs> um but I never told my husband that that the Lord had spoke that to me I think till about a few weeks after when I talked to him and he had told me that the Lord told him that too that he was pulling me out of my career for to help him in ministry to help you know whatever ministry the Lord has for me so um it was it was definitely a change and it was definitely something that I had to um, grieve for many months but it affects my functioning in so many ways that um, I guess the grieving is still kind of taking place because all those things couldn't be fixed by the surgery so I guess this may be a little bit of a, a uh, side road here for a second but um, and we've all seen and many of us have participated uh, praying for you believing God has is healing you um, but also as you touched on still dealing with um, some of those challenges and not fully recovered at this point um, can you can you share a little bit I, I put you on the spot here but obviously when you sit in one of these chairs and these discussions you're on the spot so you know but uh how I, can you talk a little bit i guess just some of your your uh your your um, process of kind of the combination of your you're dealing with what you've lived your whole life for even though i will say and i think this is very important and i think from my perspective, part of the reason uh, that I don't think there's been bitterness on your part is that even though uh, you said you've since middle school, this is what you were living for. There's not living. I'm sorry, not that's what you knew you wanted to do. 
I will rephrase that. I think first and foremost, you, your, your, your walk with God is your top priority. And so I think that to me is probably what has helped some. I mean, when you've given as much time to something as you gave, if I did that math, I think nine or so years, eight to nine years to, to even get to the point to now do what you've been wanting to do most of your life. So now it's this kind of challenge of this walk of faith and believing God's going to do but then also I would imagine some of that what if he doesn't. Um, I, I, can you share a lot? Because I'm assuming that that's not a you got this all the time kind of a thing. <laughs> no, no. So especially in the beginning, it was um, it was just a journey of, of grief kind of. It would come at times where um, – I actually had a brain injury at the same time, so it did affect my cognition, and a lot of people, I hide it really well, um, I think, I hope. Um, but I'm actually in cognitive therapy right now because I, I can't function, I'm so disorganized, I can't put things away, I can't keep my house clean. Um, there's just so many things that are completely unrelated to like the medical diagnosis and losing the career that are actually losses in my situation. Um, including that, I mean, I, I was always so high energy and, you know, clean and just kept everything organized. And now I feel like I'm a bad wife at times. And I've had to kind of deal with like the loss of being the perfect wife that had, was up before her husband was, you know, up and had his shirt ironed. Like my mom, you know, was always ironed my dad's shirts early in the morning, would press them and they were perfect. And I wanted to be that. I wanted to do that for my, you know, husband because he's in the ministry and I just feel like I would love to do that kind of thing for him and, you know, keep him organized, which I could have done very easily before my accident. He's probably lucky that I got hurt. But, um, so now it's just like, I feel like he's keeping me organized and that's, that's interesting in itself. Right. So, I mean, it's, I mean, you got that loss as well and, also, just the loss of, like, my, I feel like I, um, nobody's the same after a brain injury, no matter what. And I think everybody thinks you're either completely fine or you're, like, I don't mean to say this disrespectfully, but, like, like a vegetable. Like, you know, like, completely brain damaged. And there's, like, this continuum in between where you have problems with so many different areas um, that people don't really, can't see. So you look completely normal. And that's one of the biggest parts of my illness. Sometimes I wear my neck brace in when I go to the doctor just because everything about my injury and loss is invisible, mm -hmm. completely invisible. And people think mm -hmm. that it's not happening or that I'm better or that I've recovered or that it's gone. And mm -hmm. it's not, I carry it with me every day. And the loss of certain things, I remember, um, here's another loss, I remember going into the doctor and it was the neurosurgeon and he told me that um, if I choose to have children I could get a lot worse because the you know hormones would make my joints loose which would work on my neck the same way it would work on any other joint and um, that I could get very ill and need the fusion surgery risky fusion right away um, so it was like okay here's here goes my career here goes my health here goes my dream of being a good wife, my dream of keeping a neat house. I love decorating, and now it's just really hard to pull anything together. 
Um, but, and then, you know, here's my dream of being a mother. Here's, you know, um, my finances were a mess after my job because, you know, it took a while for all of that to get worked out. So we were on a very limited income while this was going on. And um, it was just a loss in so many different ways. Um, I remember one time, you know, the process of grieving, it just would, things would arise at certain times where I'd realize, oh, I can't do that either. Or, oh, I can't do that. Um, I remember my husband, shor uh, shortly before my accident, bought me a beautiful bike for my birthday. It was like a, a cruiser, like a baby blue with a white leather seat. Oh my goodness, I was so excited about it. And I think I, I rode it one time, but I'm not allowed to do things like that anymore. I can't do rides, I can't do anything active, any ice skating, any of like, you know, working out, all the kind of activities that I used to love to do. So, you know, for a while it was like constantly discovering new things that I couldn't do and just have to kind of lose and, and grieve over. So, I mean, there were definitely times of crying and um, my husband was a great support in the process. He was always, you know, positive Pete, you know, <laughs> like this is miserable and he's just, you know, it's gonna be okay. and. Thank God I had that because I needed it. I guess one more thing, and then we'll we'll change hot seats here for a little bit. But and I, as you were talking, and I I, um, I I was thinking back to last week and the question that I posed. I wish I'd have vetted my questions prior to the. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the question I posed to Sister uh, Richards about, you know, I think I asked kind of what's worse or more difficult spouse versus a child and and the point that she made was you, you really can't compare and, and I think as, as you were talking I was reminded of that and I think it's so important because you you made the point and I think it's very true um, and and I think I've been as your pastor and um, Mike is actually off camera over here it's it's kind of our our subconscious thing to want to look at it but um, <laughs> I keep finding myself wanting to do that so um, I, I, I've been fairly aware uh, of the things you guys have been dealing with now through all of this and I think it's I think it's such an important point that we it's easy to judge people by how they carry themselves by how they look that you know, and as you've said, we sitting here looking at you, we'd never know some of these, and 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 I think, and, and the main point I want to make with that again is, is the not to minimize for an individual to not minimize, it's your loss. You know, we could sit here and go, well, I mean, at least you haven't lost a spouse, or at least that's, that's you know, in some ways, okay, but that doesn't at all negate the the significance of the impact on you and I think that's um, what's again I guess kind of one of my burdens in these these two sessions at this point is is I is I think we we have a tendency to compare uh, you know I sit here and thankfully I have my first wife is sitting here with me <laughs> and my only one <laughs> and all four of my children are, are alive and overall healthy um, and and I know I found myself when I've looked at some of the things that are my losses going well 
you know, suck it up, get over it because you're not dealing with this or that or whatever. And the bottom line is, and I think especially as a child of God, we have to be confident in this. God purposefully knows what each one of us needs as a part of our path and our process. So um, I, I know that many of you know, you know, my wife's story. She's testified about her, her mother's passing and all that. And uh, But wanted her kind of on here as a little bit different perspective of uh, a couple of other areas um, of, of loss. And I'll just kind of throw one out as a little bit of a, of a starting point and um, kind of just wherever it goes from there. But um, she's had four miscarriages and um, four kids. And um, sometimes I'm overwhelmed by the thought if we'd not have had four miscarriages and four more kids. Wow. Been a lively bunch. Um, but anyway, I, I know that's a, and, and I, let me say this again. Um, and I know there will be probably a f few more people watching that can relate to this part. Maybe you, this, some of the specifics from, from Melissa, but I, I want to state it again. None of these discussions are about saying this is the way, the right way, the wrong way, because every person has uh, kind of a, probably a little bit of a different reaction and a, pro and a way of processing things. Um, so if nothing else, again, just kind of a way of stirring up um, thought. So. Yeah, so um, I had two miscarriages. Um, we were about our third and fourth year into marriage. Uh, the first two were extremely difficult um, because uh, obviously we're excited about our first child. Um, and then eight weeks into it, had a miscarriage. And then next pregnancy, very excited again. The first one that had to have been a fluke thing, it's all good. We're bound to, you know, this one's going to be okay. And then 10 weeks into that one, um, I lost the second baby and um, so it gives you a lot of anxiety moving forward um, with getting pregnant again um, you put a lot of hope into all that and um, and so in 96 we got pregnant with Elizabeth um, we we're pretty nervous but once we hit about the 12 14 week mark we felt really good about it and so sure enough um, along came Elizabeth in 97 and then ooh, surprise um, Elizabeth was nine months old and found out I was pregnant with Esther and um, and then uh, two years after Esther came Timothy um, so basically when Timothy was born we had three children that were three and under so <laughs> it definitely started to make up for those <laughs> two um, you know, felt like the two losses, you know, and, and so I think what he was saying about everybody deals with things differently and perspectives change and things like that, those first two felt very, um, very hard, very difficult. But when Timothy was nine months old, this was the point at which most people teased us that we needed to get a TV. 
um, found out I was pregnant again. <laughs> the comments, oh my word, the comments, you know, and um, I was at that point, if you've heard any of my testimony, I do talk about how the Lord dealt with me in this fourth, well, this would have been, I guess, a sixth pregnancy. Um, this pregnancy threw me off really badly. I, for the first time ever, had the feeling like I don't want to be pregnant. <laughs> I don't want another baby. I'm freaking out. I can't do this. Um, these kids are, you know, like... <laughs> I'm freaking out and so that was a whole new experience um, and to be quite honest with you I was ashamed of myself like I felt so much shame for feeling that way especially I had a good friend at the time who um, could not get pregnant and so I just I would just weep and weep just feeling so ashamed of myself like what is wrong with you Angie and so I, it was actually during that time, too, that the Lord really dealt with me and, and kind of said, imagine how your mom felt. So when my mom, when I was three years old, my mom found out she was pregnant. She had three stair-step kids. And when she got to the fourth pregnancy, she freaked out and she had an abortion. And I had judged her for years and years over that abortion. And it was like, wow, sitting there in that moment, fourth, you know, looking at fourth child coming, freaking out not sure how I can do it and it's just like the Lord just showed me how to have mercy on her and look back with mercy so it was this really big divining point in some of my forgiveness process towards my mom um but it was super crazy because um for whatever reason the the midwives I was working with were like oh you're fine you can come see us at about 12 weeks it's fine you know been there done that I got the t-shirt know how to have babies um and I actually had put off the first appointment until the 14th week. Huge mistake. Um, and they don't really do a lot of this stuff anymore, but we're going back 22 years. So um, I was scheduled to go in for um, my first exam at 14 weeks and I started to miscarry. And I knew this was really bad miscarriage. Wound up in the ER. Um, and they had to, they did a sonogram on me and basically reported that I was not carrying babies at all. I had been growing a growth, a tumor basically inside of me. It's called a molar pregnancy, you know, and, um, I was stunned. Um, I was hemorrhaging. I was just told that I didn't in fact even have babies, a baby inside of me. I was then told that the procedure they had to do was gonna be so bad, so difficult and so sensitive that if they, if it goes badly, they might have to do an emergency hysterectomy. So I'm basically told and that if they don't get all of it out, it could grow inside of me further and cause ovarian cancer and all this crazy stuff. So I literally am sat there and I'm, hemorrhaging in the hospital with no doctor in sight helping me, my poor husband. I am being told that I could have cancer. I'm being told that I could have a, a hysterectomy. And I'm just flipping. So at that point, I think I just lost it. They wheeled me in for emergency surgery and, um, and I was home by the next morning. And to deal with what felt like this huge, um, I, you know, I, like, okay, 
God, what kind of cruel joke was this? You know, person pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant. I get over it. I'm, you know, whatever, happy. And then I'm elated. Yes, I were having another baby. This is awesome. Only for all this to happen, find out like I wasn't even carrying a baby. So it was the weirdest, weirdest time. Um, and so I guess about nine months after that, I got pregnant again because we felt very strongly that we were going to have two boys. Um, had the two girls and we thought we were going to have two boys. So I don't know if we're just gluttons for punishment. I don't know why. I think a lot of people would have just given up and said no more. Um, and I wound up nine months later having another miscarriage. Um, at that point, I was done in and I really did not think we would have any more. I didn't think I could do it. And um, I know I say surprise, it's not really a surprise, but surprise, <laughs> I was pregnant and um, definitely freaking out over this one, freaking out. And nine months later, Nathaniel came along. And so yay for Nathaniel, he's a huge blessing in our life. Um, so I'm glad we didn't stop at three, but um, all that said, I think um, miscarriage is a bit of a topic that's kind of not talked about a lot. And um, there's a lot of things I learned from it. Um, one of the biggest things was there's just not any right or wrong necessarily. Um, the first two, like I said, it was total loss, total grief, total, you know, at that third one, even as dramatic and as horrible as it was, I still had those three toddlers at home and I was still freaking out. And I confess there was a bit of relief too that happened. And I've counseled and talked to other mothers. And while I want to feel ashamed of that, I've just come to recognize that we're just each different and we're at each at a different phase in our life, a different stage and all those things. And so it's like, you know, it's like what you just said, we can't judge each other. Um, because we haven't walked a mile in each other's shoes. And so we don't really know, um, you know, it, it took me a long time to even accept the fact that I felt some sort of relief. Cause I, there again, like I said, I felt so much shame over that, but I had to realize that grief process, like I had to just stop every time and take a minute to just take that pause. And, you know, a lot of it too is the loss of control. I, I guess it's just what I, came to realize in life, um, so much of life is totally out of our control. It doesn't matter. And that's one thing that miscarriage is, it's a real puzzlement. Um, th uh, there's not one doctor that could tell us why I kept miscarrying. I have no idea why. Um, and so it's just it's just one of those losses that is often extremely just unexplained it's un it's completely out of your control and i think that's just one thing that resonates with me and with a whole lot of things in life is that it's you're just not in control and how you deal with that is a huge part of the process um we say that there's not good and bad grief, but the fact is there actually is, there really is bad grief um, in a sense, because if you, if you really can't accept that God is God and he's in control and I am not, <laughs> you, 
you can go down a really bad path um, of accusing God. And if, if you were in my session a few weeks ago and, and it's on the list to read The Prisoner in the First Cell, I mean, the bottom line is, are you willing to follow a God that does not meet your expectations? Are you willing to follow a God that you cannot understand? And it's like, in my opinion, we could sit here and talk about every scenario of loss. And the bottom line, I think, with so much of it is we don't understand it. Why the infamous? Why? Why is this happening to me? Why do I have to go through this? Why, God, I'm this, you know, I'm trying to live for you. I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm trying to, you know, cross all the T's, dot all the I's, and yet I'm still going through all this stuff. And um, the infamous why, it doesn't, it doesn't even help to ask that question. The real question in the room is, can I follow a God? Can I serve a God who I don't understand, who does things in my life or allows things in my life? That I, you know, he's in control. And um, I don't know. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I learned from all of that is I'm just simply not in control of my life. Um, and a number of other areas, you know, like he touched on, uh, um, goodness, you said loss of innocence, but there's another one that resonated with me. You know, the loss of innocence, that was an interesting one. And what I mean by that is if everybody knows our story, yes, we were virgins when we got married. So I don't mean that. I mean, um, it wasn't until we were married and I took away our 12 year old Elizabeth to teach her about purity and teach her about the birds and the bees for lack of a better poor Elizabeth. She hates, probably does not like it when I tell this story, but you know, little precious was raised in a godly home and um, I took her away and we had this great weekend and I'll never forget coming home and falling apart in my bedroom, completely falling apart, sobbing and realizing I was grieving over what I did not, was not given in my life, was not given by my parents. I didn't have the parents who did that and taught me, you know, everything in the proper way. And in fact, worse, I saw pornography when I was four years old, as early as four, all the way through into my teen years, I was exposed to pornography on and off. And, um, you know, it, wow, that's, <laughs> not the way to learn about life um and so all the shame and all the the guilt and all that junk that comes with that um but it really hit me so you know when you say loss of innocence I feel like everybody immediately jumps to you know I don't know whatever sex before marriage in the backseat of a car whatever like they're just and honestly I didn't deal with that loss of innocence until I was a grown married woman and staring at my precious daughter who was receiving a great wholesome life um you know and feeling like I really had to grieve that you know so things like that I think along the way I've had to grieve um so I feel like I'm talking a lot <laughs> I think before we go back to Melissa for a minute just kind of continuing along those lines because I think there's people that can relate that and this before but you know you're sort of watching your children grow up with things that you never had a stable home good parents and that that 
sort of triggers also loss because you look back at what you didn't have. And I think there's a variety of things that can happen from that. One of them is you can become bitter towards your own family because they've got what you didn't have. I guess, could you just touch on that for a moment? <laughs> <laughs> Not being bitter, yeah. but being better. You know, um, honestly, I've talked to a number of parents who struggle with this. Um, you know, just, I don't ever want to assume that everybody knows my whole story, but my parents divorced when I was eight. You know, we tossed back and forth between mom and dad, living with mom and dad. My dad got saved at the at shortly after they got divorced. Um, and then by the time I was 15, my mom died. Um, and so we obviously lived with my dad full time after that. And all that to say, um, my parents, you know, were a hot mess. <laughs> all I remember was arguing. Um, there was some fun times and the Lord has helped to bring back some fun times. But all that to say there have been a number of times, more times than I can count, that in a strategic moment in time, I can remember one exactly on a Thanksgiving. Um, Thanksgiving was a really big deal to me as a kid. My mom would go all out. She was an amazing chef. Um, and she was, everybody wanted to go to Pam's house for Thanksgiving, but it would always end up in a huge family fight. Just, oh my word, my mom's family, they're all hotheads. I'm telling, yelling and screaming. And as kids, so I have all this crazy emotions when it comes to Thanksgiving, because it's like, it's all this great food, and my mom made this big deal out of it, and watched the Macy's Day Parade, but then it always ended. Like, I mean, one time we had to call the police because my uncles were fighting. I mean, yelling and screaming. So just crazy stuff like that. But I, so fast forward, I just remember this Thanksgiving, which my word, Esther, Lauren, the child would not eat something I put on her plate for breakfast. It was little ham, little piece of ham. She didn't like the, the trim around that Canadian bacon or ham, whatever. I don't even know. And I'm just sitting there staring at her. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Just eat it, just eat it. And I felt things escalating. I know it seems really foolish, but it's these moments in time that are real that you have to stop and pay attention. I felt myself escalating for no good reason, and she's getting worked up, and she's escalating, and I don't remember how old she was, like 10 or something. You remember that? <laughs> so Something in me caught me and said, do you want your children to have this memory? Do you want Esther to remember Thanksgiving like this? And it just, it, it stopped me dead in my tracks. And I just said, it's fine, honey, bring it over here. I'll cut it off for you, whatever. And I just cut off the edge. I take your stupid ham without the edge on it, you know, whatever. So, because I mean, really, truly, it was not a big deal. But it's it just so many times, I think, as parents, we, uh, you know, I could have easily, I, we let things escalate. We let it, I don't know, this isn't a parenting session, but... The thing that helped me was to not be bitter, but to be better. Part of it is I challenged myself year after year as the kids got older that I was not going to, for them to not have those same memories that I had. Um, and it is a conscientious mental decision that you make. Um, 
sometimes we can over spiritualize it and yes there are times that my goodness i just end up in my room crying and praying to keep the situation from escalating into something that's going to be a horrible memory so yes it is spiritual but at the same time it's very much a mental decision and because bitterness breeds bitterness and so if we don't stop that cycle um then, then we just perpetuate in family life. And then before you know it, your kids grow up, have the same exact memory you did of, you know, whatever. And so, you know, that's why it's a determination of mine to stay married. I mean, my grandparents were divorced, my parents were divorced, you know? It was likely statistics prove that I should be divorced right now. And I refuse to let that statistic rule my life. And so, I don't know. Lisa, I'm to come back to you, and I think uh, this may be kind of my final question uh, for the evening. But I think, um, to me, one of the one of the unique things about your circumstances is a lot of times grieving and loss has to do with something that's basically done and in the past. And you've already alluded to it, things that pop up here and there um, that, you know, you now you can't do this or, or different things. But to me, all of that kind of speaks to this sort of an ongoing process that you're in. And I guess if you could just talk a little bit about how you deal with that, how, what is your approach to... <laughs> maintaining a right attitude and a right spirit when again you've got these things that are it's it's not it's not a it's not a set done deal you now know the full impact you're still and then as we said we're all still believing that god is healing and going to heal and so you're also in that back and forth i would imagine as well so um it, it, you know, what, I guess, what's your process, if I could yeah, I mean, it's put it true that way? And part of it, um, I don't know if you call it like how, what I said earlier, is um, the more I move my neck, the more they say I'm killing brain cells which in my brainstem, which, you know, the trajectory, if you look ahead, if, if I look ahead, based on what they've told me, I could end up not being able to walk and control my body functions and breathe. So, you know, it's been also balancing, like, not allowing fear to come in and just take over me because I've already lost so much, but then there's also the impending threat of losing, you know, more function and more ability on top of all the other things I've lost. So, you know, I've actually, I think one of the things that's helped is really putting up boundaries against fear because fear tried to come in and really wreak havoc on my life, like in the first probably year, I would say, after my accident to two years, which I was so foggy in my brain, it was kind of hard to know what was going on, but fear was like really attacking me because of that. But though, I mean, I just listened to basically what Bishop preaches is casting your cares and wow, this is a big one, but that means I just have to cast it extra far because if I, if it's close to me, I'm gonna pick it up every day and I'm gonna worry about it. I'm gonna make decisions based off of it. I'm not gonna do this because I'm scared. I'm not gonna, you know, do this because I'm scared I'm gonna make myself worse. You know, I had to get to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna wear my neck brace in the car anymore because 
you know, for a while I was so scared. What if I get in an accident and it's not on and, you know, kaput. <laughs> and um, I, I can't live like that. I just can't live like that. And eventually I had to make a decision that the fear, I'm not going to let it rule me. I'm, I'm, if it, the, my, my life, like going back to what Sister Angie was saying is you, when things like this happen to you, you know that you literally have no control. And for somebody who was always in control, complete control of everything, this was like such a learning opportunity. And I see it as a complete blessing that the Lord, well, I wish it didn't have to come this way, but um, I'm taking advantage of the lesson because I think every loss comes with a lesson. Wow. And if we don't embrace that lesson, you know, I feel like either another loss is going to come or another situation, the Lord's going to try to teach you that same lesson. So. Mm -hmm. I'm telling the Lord, you know, I'm going to learn this lesson. I'm going to give you control. I'm not going to worry about, you know, what you decide for my life. And I'm going to trust you completely with every every aspect of this. And so that's kind of my perspective on how I've gotten through loss. And I'll say one thing that's actually helped me is um, as a little girl, um, my, you know, spiritual idol was Nona Freeman. And she wrote a book called Potholes in the Sky. And it was about like all the times where um, she just had like travel mishaps, but the Lord would always tell her ahead of time, like, you know, something's about to happen on this plane. And so when she'd be on it and then all of a sudden the plane would like take a nosedive, like she was like, I was totally calm. <laughs> and as a little girl, I, I, that was in my heart. I, I loved her books and I read it and I'm like, I want to be like that. Like, I want that outlook. Like, I want to walk with Jesus like that because I will go through anything. I'll walk through anything with the Lord, but I just know he's with me or he gives me a hint or he tells me that I'm in his hand at the time I'm okay and I'll walk through it with him and it was actually really cool because about um, three or four months before my accident I came home from work one day and Michael remembers this um, I started crying for no reason it was so weird and I told him I looked at him I said Michael nothing's ever gonna be the same I said something's coming and I said I don't know what it is I said but nothing's ever gonna be the same and that's all I kept saying nothing's ever gonna be the same and I was crying my eyes out and he was I don't know what his perspective was and what he was thinking but I didn't know what it was but that was the I know now and like when I look back on like what happened the months before the Lord was preparing things that I never knew I would need and so then when you have that realization you're like you know it makes it a little bit easier because you know he's walking with you you know he's holding your hand and then the second thing that happened I can't go into too much detail about this one um, but I the Lord put something on my heart um, I, my accident was in January in November the Lord put something on my heart that I needed to take care of um, about my career and just about my future you know retirement you know like purposes um, you know, disability-wise and things like that, the Lord put a strong burden on my heart that you have a very involved job. If, if you lost a finger in an accident, you know, you went to all this schooling and it would be kaput if, you know, you lost a finger or something. Um, so, you know, people with those kind of jobs have to make preparations for if something happened, you know, some kind of insurance, you know, some kind of something like that. Um, so the Lord put that very heavy on my heart and um, I obeyed and I actually told Michael about it at that time, like two months before my accident, he thought I was crazy. He's like, you're young, you're fine. You know, it's a lot of money, you know, we shouldn't put money towards that kind of thing. But um, it was on my heart and it was the Lord who did that. And wow. I'm telling you, if I didn't listen to that, mm -hmm. my life right now would be completely different. I probably would have lost my home. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We lost our cars. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. But the thing is that God is so merciful that he looks ahead. And, and see, that's what makes me be able to trust him in this kind of terrible situation is that he was looking ahead before I knew that it was going to happen. And he was helping me. He was preparing me. He was warning me. He was working on his heart. He was preparing me. And I think that he does that in a lot of situations. I think sometimes it's hard to notice, but um, I think that that really helps helps me have comfort and strength going through. For sure. I, the, the statement you made, every loss comes with a lesson. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that is, mm-hmm. that is so powerful. And I think it's the lack of learning the lesson that opens the door for bitterness. Yeah. And it's to some degree it is the learning of the lesson that validates and makes the loss more bearable not that it takes it away but wow I guess uh, I'll I'll come back to um, my better half for one more point here and kind of more so kind of focus to the process Um, and you were talking a little bit today I think you referenced Psalms 23 and um some 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 of the things that it says in there that I think relates to this process of grieving and overcoming would you yeah so you know I don't know if when Psalm 23 was written if it was intended to be in that specific order per se because Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures he restores my soul um, you know, and goes on to say, you know, walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And, you know, it just, the one thing I have to say to everybody is, at some point, um, if you walk through that valley of the shadow of death, um, you have to also lie down in green pastures. You have to, you know, a lot of times we get through something and things get better or feels better. You know, I was even thinking about Sean Whaley recently. I've kept his um, little program from his funeral on the console of my car. And I was kind of doing like they did with Moses, you know, and I was mourning for a month. Um, But I just, um, because, but I've actually done that on purpose because I feel like sometimes what we do is things get better. You know, and we never really stop and take a minute. We never, we never lie down. (laughs) And and to me, with that, when I think about that lying down in green pastures, it's like to me, it's like such a contrast to the valley of the shadow of death. You know, that's the terrible place. That's the dark place. You know, and then you're like, oh, I'm gonna just skip around when I'm in the green pastures, when really the Lord is saying. No, that's the time you need to take a minute and you need to grieve and you need to let go and you need to, because it's where I think too, when, um, is it even a scripture? It won't put more on us than we can bear. I don't know. That's something we made up. It's not quite like that, but it's something we've twisted around a little bit, but I do believe he, he doesn't, he doesn't want to break us you know I mean maybe our will but he doesn't want to break us so in other words I think sometimes he kind of waits for the green pasture and he's waiting for us 
to be still and in his presence and he's waiting for that because that's when he wants to speak because if when we're in it you know and going through it if he's trying to you know pour on the lesson and pour on everything you know while we're in it I mean it could break us it's too much it's um, it's like I always say about the onion that gets peeled back layer by layer, you know, you cut straight through it and your eyes, you know, you can't handle it. So, but the key is that we have to lie down. We have to stop and we have to let the Lord heal us. And I just feel like, and especially in this day and time, we just go and go and do and do. And we never really truly stop and take that time, be it just your morning prayer time or just in his presence. I think it's even what we're doing with Engage, just alone time in the presence of God and letting him restore your soul. I think that that's what it's all about. It's those times to me that he He peels back some things and says, you know, you need to grieve this. That was a loss for you. You need to, um, you know, look back at that part in your life. And he reveals things to us when we stop and take a minute. Um, so I feel like that's a really critical part of the process. Um, and they touched on it last week a little bit. I know Jalen had said that. And it's really easy to just, you know, go and go and do and do and not stop. But I think it's a part of that process. So. Well, um, as we said last week, we probably could go on and on. This evening, but I think we'll we'll bring it to a close here. There was a there was a statement I thought of today. I can't remember the exact statement. I feel like I heard it in actually the Conquer series, um, Conquer DVD series that deals with overcoming pornography. Um, it was there, or or some other, I think similar type of thing, and. And I, I can't remember the exact way it was said, but the gist of it really stuck with me this afternoon with regards to this. And that is, uh, I'll say it this way, grieving, the process of grieving is not a strictly linear progression where you're constantly just moving forward, making progress. It's a, I can't remember in the quote that I heard if it was cyclical or circular, but in essence, I think it's more like a, a loop. Mm. And, the, and the thing we miss about that is you actually can make a loop and end up making forward progress. But there's a portion of that loop where you actually feel like you're going backwards. Mm. And I think it's in that moment as we're progressing through this process that we get discouraged, yeah. hopeless. We start questioning, am I really progressing is God really healing me am I really over because there's that moment again of kind of a backwards but by the time we make it through another cycle we've actually made some progress and again I guess another one of my burdens in these two weeks is I think we have to be very realistic and I think last week it was communicated and I've heard it here this evening um but it, it, it is an ongoing process. It's not just this smooth line moving forward, whether it's a new challenge that comes up or another thing from the past that is brought up that takes us to another layer, another level of, of 
recognizing loss and things we need to work through, things we need to grieve over. Um, we, we, we don't need to get too bogged down in that brief moment of feeling like, wait a minute, I'm going backwards. Because maybe to a degree you are, but it's a part of that process of, of moving forward. So um, if tonight's your first uh, one of these conversations to hear, I would encourage you to uh, go back and listen to last week and a lot of other things were covered, a lot of other uh, types of loss and uh, the process for that. And um, I trust that um, in these two weeks, the Lord again uh, I'm not so much as concerned about those of you that have the big things you can relate to um, because you're you're probably listening pretty well. It's I think one of the things I felt very burdened for in these two weeks is those that may be discounting uh, some things that are lost and have an impact and that there is a lesson in that loss. So um, how about we close with a word of prayer this evening? Father, I pray right now, those that may be watching this evening, uh, watching live as we've had this conversation, but also for someone that in the future will watch this. I pray, God, that whatever the losses are they're dealing with, if it's, if it's the kind of loss that we all recognize as being the big losses, and we understand that those big losses have an impact on us, and we've got to overcome them we've got to grieve them or if it's those God that maybe maybe we don't relate to the deaths or the big tragedies but there are there are things that every one of us has experienced that's a loss and it really doesn't matter what the loss is we are impacted by the losses that you allow that you choose in our lives for our growth and development I pray, Father, tonight for every individual that maybe they've yet to really embrace the process of grieving their losses, whatever they are, Lord, that they might find healing and wholeness. I pray that you would help them to be willing to embrace that process, things that they may have chosen to bury and ignore, thinking that was the only option. God, I pray that you would, by your grace, give them the strength to embrace the process that you've ordained, that they might find healing and wholeness and that they might learn the lesson, God, that you are wanting to teach through that loss. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for your power to heal us, to bring us to restoration in our minds, our hearts, our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.